This is Coast to Coast with Robert Ambrogi and J. Craig Williams, America's top web bloggers in the legal profession. And yes, they are attorneys, both of them. One from California, one from Massachusetts. You can only guess what will happen next. Coast to Coast is sponsored by Law.com, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Coast to Coast on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi in Massachusetts. And I'm Craig Williams in Southern California. I write a blog called May It Please the Court. Bob? And I write two blogs, Law Sites and Media Law. Well, some people have uh, been saying that the economy has been bad for business, but a recent study out this week suggests that something different is happening, at least in the top law firms in the United States. According to the results of the 2006 National Law Journal 250, the 29th annual survey of the nation's largest law firms, some grew 4% in numbers of partners. Um, The nation's largest law firms grew 4%, partners grew by 5.1%, and numbers of associates grew by 4.8%. Well, today we're going to explore a little bit uh, the trends behind, uh, revealed in the NLJ 250 survey, the rise in partners, associates, and some of the new firms that have joined the ranks. Bob, we're also going to talk about some of the hot areas of the practice specialty that are booming, like corporate governance, intellectual property, and international dispute resolution. And the fields of practice may be causing this growth, and we're going to ask some questions about why the growth. We have three great guests, all with different perspectives. Right. So to kick it off, our first guest I'd like to welcome to the program is Lee Jones, a reporter for the National Law Journal. Uh, Lee wrote uh, several of the articles accompanying the a uh, survey published this week in the National Law Journal and also available on law.com. Uh, Lee covers law firm trends and, and law schools as a staff reporter for the National Law Journal. Uh, before joining the NLJ in 2004, she was the Long Island Bureau Chief for the New York Law Journal. Uh, she is also a licensed attorney, but we won't hold that against her. Welcome to the show, Lee. Thank you. And our next guest is Attorney Dan Goldberg. Attorney Goldberg is a partner at Bingham McCutcheon in Boston, an international law firm with some 950 lawyers. Dan co-chairs the firm's antitrust and trade regulation practice group and is a nationally recognized sports lawyer. I believe he works with the Red Sox. He was recently named Chambers USA uh, as a thought by Chambers USA as a thoughtful and combative litigator. He's acted as a lead counsel for a number of clients in complex sports franchise matters and has served as a lead counsel for the New England Patriots and, of course, the Boston Red Sox. He is part of the team in a new business unit at Bingham McCutcheon called Bingham Sports Consulting, which we will hear more about in a minute. Welcome to the show, Dan. Great. Thanks a lot. And finally joining us today is Eric L. Garner. Uh, Eric is managing partner of Best Best and Krieger. He's uh, practiced uh, at that firm in California for 18 years, where his primary focus is water law and environmental law. He's represented clients in matters involving the Mojave River, the Santa Maria Valley, the Santa Ana River, among others. And Eric has written uh, water laws for the governments of South Africa, Trinidad, and Pakistan. Uh, His firm, Best Best and Krieger, recently made a a significant leap on the NLJ 250 this year, going up uh, 32 places from the 247th spot to 215 this year. Welcome to the show, Eric. Thank you. Good to be here. Lee, I wonder if we could start with you and ask you uh, if you could kind of uh, give us an overview of the findings and the trends revealed by the NLJ 250 this year. Well, sure. Um, I think the 
main message to um, get from the results is that business is good for law firms. Um, as you mentioned, there was a 4% increase in the number of lawyers, and that's what we're looking at in the NLJ 250 is the number of lawyers working at the law firms, at the nation's largest 250 law firms. And that was at 4%. Um, last year, it was a, a, a bit more. It was up 4.4%, uh, but still, um, both those years show marked uh, increases. And obviously, um, law firms add attorneys when they have more business, and I think that's what we can take away from it. Um, partners up 5.1%, associates 4.8%. Both of those numbers are, are real encouraging in terms of what law firms are going to see I think you know we can we can look ahead to the coming year and and, and expect good news for them. Well, yeah, I thought it was uh, interesting that the the top ten uh, firms on the list uh, remain pretty much the same for I think over the last few years. Uh, so it seems like the movement uh, is happening a little bit farther down on the list. Uh, Absolutely. You know, Ten uh, yeah. firms off the list this year. Ten new firms on the list, and, and various other shuffles here and there. Yeah, I mean, you're typically going to see the biggest of the uh, of the big, um, not too much change. Um, of course, there have been some some mergers in the last couple of years that have moved, like DLA Piper up, and uh, Greenberg Traurig has moved into uh, one of the top positions. But but not much movement this year in terms of the top ten. And like you said, we're we're seeing a lot more movement in the the middle tier where those firms are kind of trying to figure out what their uh, business strategy is and 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 some uh, more successful than others. But uh, the, the top ten pretty much stay the same. How have mergers played a role in uh, the NLJ 250? Well, uh, this year we continued to see um, quite a few mergers, and we even have some announcement of mergers that are going to – that closed or are going to close uh, after the NLJ, um, after our research was completed. You know, one of the uh, big mergers this year was Bingham McCutcheon with Swidler Berlin, Edwards and Angel with Palmer and Dodge in Boston. We've got some others that um, have been announced but not completed, one of which is Oric Harrington and Sutcliffe with Dewey Ballantyne. That's a, that's a huge, huge deal. Uh, Philadelphia's Drinker, Biddle and Wreath with Gardner, Carton and Douglas and Day, Barry and Howard with Pitney Harden. All of those have been announced, but uh, probably will close around the first of the year. Eric, what's been the big contributor to BB&K's growth? Um, well, we have a little bit of an unusual uh, niche, I think, compared to a lot of firms. And really, our, our growth has been driven by the, the growth here in California, but we do a tremendous amount of work for governmental agencies, um, cities, counties, um, and other special agencies here in California. Um, and that work has has been growing significantly and is likely to continue to grow with the major commitment that uh, Californians just made to the infrastructure of the state um, last week with the, uh, the bonds that were approved out here. Um, so it's really been the, the growth in governmental, the need for governmental services out here that's driven our growth. Dan Goldberg, what about, I mean, Bingham McCutcheon has made a, a pattern of mergers and acquisitions over the last couple of years. Uh, I'm, I'm old enough to remember when Bingham was still a fairly modestly sized firm. Uh, and, and now I think it was ranked about 32 on the list this year. Uh, is, is that going to continue to be the trend with Bingham McCutcheon? Well, we have certainly grown over the years, as I remind people, having been there as, as a Bingham lifer. I joined the firm as Lawyer 58, and we now have over 900 lawyers. Um, and we've done it through a series of acquisitions. I think that we will continue to look for opportunities, uh, but We've never grown just for the sake of growing. Uh, we 
will be uh, announcing another international uh, uh, opportunity shortly. But I, I think that there will continue to be some deliberate uh, growth uh, through acquisition over time. Well, what you announced this week was the opening of an office in Hong Kong, and, and uh, just just a few weeks ago announced the the opening of of uh, a new consulting affiliate that you're part of. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yes, the the uh, new consulting group is the Bingham Sports Consulting Group. It is Bingham's fourth affiliated business, and we have been involved in sports lawyering for, for decades. Uh, as you mentioned in the lead-in to the show, we've represented the Red Sox for years, culminating in the record-setting sale in O2 for $700 million of the team. Uh, we've represented the Patriots for years. We've represented uh, uh, the current owners of the Dodgers in connection with their acquisition of the Dodgers. We've done a series of naming rights deals, stadium financing, and so forth. What we announced this year is a, excuse me, this, this month is a new component to that, and that's a sports consulting group because it's one thing to do the lawyering for all of that, uh, and it is another uh, really to bring in someone who has been on the inside, in this case, the inside of Major League Baseball. Uh, we brought in as a principal of Bingham Sports Consulting, John Harrington, who for uh, years uh, was the CEO of the Red Sox. We've worked with John extensively over the years in connection with his role with the Red Sox. And what he will bring uh, to a consulting component to all of this is somebody who has been on the inside of Major League Baseball in terms of ownership, in terms of revenue enhancement, uh, in terms of uh, all of the various uh, overlays uh, that, uh, that really sports leagues impose on businesses whether it's understanding the revenue-sharing issues or uh, the negotiation for players or even deals like which, uh, which was just announced uh, this week uh, in terms of what you need to do in order to uh, retain players from Japan. Eric, what do you see in the future for BB&Ks? Are you on a similar type of growth pattern that you think you'll jump again next year this size by uh, either internal growth or by mergers? I, I don't see any mergers on our horizon. We did just open an office uh, in downtown Los Angeles, which gives us access to a market that historically we have not been in, um, even though we are the only sort of public agency law firm throughout the state of California. Um, so I do see continued growth. Um, we've done it primarily internally and through acquisitions of small groups of lawyers, and that's the pattern um, I would see continuing. So, yeah, I wonder if we can come back to you. I wonder if one of the one of the um uh, trends that, that you mentioned is is, is an increase uh, in the numbers of, of uh, non-equity partners in the firms, uh, modest again, but still growing. Uh, it really increases across the board. Uh, right. Are you are you able to discern any anything anything from that other than the sheer numbers? Does that tell you anything about uh, these firms? Yeah, I, I think it does. Um, I think it, it represents a couple of things. The increase in non-equity partners in we're looking at um, the the average – the way we look at it is the average number of equity partners uh, per firm that report uh, – excuse me, ha- that report non-equity partners. And that jumped by a, a good 16 percent this year. Um, and, and I think it says a couple of things. One, I think it says that uh, firms – the equity partners <clears> – <throat> are more interested in <laughs> keeping the um, their profits per partner high. And so if you have 
more non-equity partners, that means that the number of equity partners, and meaning those who actually own a piece of the firm, uh, stays relatively static or, or does not go up um, uh, as as high as the other. That means that that pool of lawyers who um, is able to uh, you know reap the profits, it, they keep that small. The other thing that I that I think it it reflects is um, a, a certain nimbleness on the part of firms that you know they 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 want to enable their associates to to step up a notch they're not ready to commit to um, having them be full partners yet they have the work to um, to give those people so they'll put them in this kind of um, in-between position um, and and the non-equity status not only uh, can serve the Law firm, but it can also uh, serve the attorneys themselves if if they're not ready to, um, you know, they're not ready to take on the additional responsibilities, or you know, they're just trying if they want a little bit more flexibility. But primarily, it is to the firm's benefit uh, to keep the number of full partners low so that they can tap into those profits. Well, let's put that proposition to uh, one of the equity partners we have on the phone here. I mean, Eric Kerner, what, what's your response to that? How, how does your firm uh, deal with the issue of, of equity part, non-equity partners and equity partners and, uh, and, and, and maintain the kind of nimbleness that Lee talks about? Um, well, it's definitely something we've gotten more nimble with in the, past few, in the last few years, as I think all um, large firms have, for, for some of the reasons that Lee Described. I mean, I think just to speak to kind of the economics issue up front, um, partners and firms tend to judge themselves, thanks to the American lawyer, on equity pro- um, equity partner profits and that that per partner profit number. So there is maybe sometimes an untoward emphasis on on that in terms of the economic health of the firm. Um, but I think also it reflects um, maybe some evolution in in the law firm and in people who practice law. I think you can see a non-equity partner category used for older partners who may not want to retire and the firm may not want to retire and still have something to contribute but may not want to be fully involved in the equity partner grind. You can certainly see it for folks coming up as a a stopping off point. You can at times see people move in and out um, for lifestyle or family reasons. They may take some years in a non-equity partner position and then seek to move back into equity partner. And then I think lastly, with all the the mergers and acquisitions that have have, uh, increased so much in the last few years, um, for firms like ours, we use that as a, a category for someone who joins us, and then there's a couple-year waiting period before they're eligible for equity partnership simply to see if they like us and, and we like them. So I think it's, it's a combination of all those things that's led to the increase. I'd be interested to hear Dan's thoughts on that coming from a much bigger firm. Well, I, I agree. I definitely agree with the notion that things have evolved uh, Many years ago, obviously, you had essentially two categories. You had the associates, and then either, and it was an up or out, and you either became an equity partner or you were asked to leave. And uh, for all variety of economic reasons, not the least of which is uh, the pay scales for associates. Uh, it doesn't make sense to do that, and it makes sense to have many more categories of of uh, uh, of, uh, of attorneys, uh, so that. They can stay with the firm, and they can continue to grow. And I think, ultimately, you still need to provide people with the incentive and the prospect that they will be able to grow into the equity rank. I think that incentive remains important. Uh, But I think many firms are are 
notwithstanding that finding that uh, whether for lifestyle reasons or, or other reasons, uh, folks uh, are content uh, uh, with, an, with some interim category. Dan, do you see the trend of opening uh, ancillary consulting firms continuing and even growing for law firms? Do you, will that occur with more large law firms across the country? Uh, I don't have a real sense for how how much that is happening uh, really at other firms. I don't know of any other firm that has done, uh, for example, what we just announced in terms of the sports consulting. Uh, and I think that traditionally uh, firms have either gone with the uh, lobbying or government relations arm and have not gone too, too far beyond that uh, for a variety of reasons. So I'm not sure that, that I see that as a nationwide trend. I'm not sure if that's something that Lee has followed more closely. We have seen more ancillary practices, um, but they they tend to be very focused, um, and they tend. In- Firms tend to kind of get a corner share of the market. On we see insurance um, ancillary practices. Um, we see um, some uh, healthcare kind, and usually they're consulting types of businesses. I wonder. We we definitely do see that out here in, in California. Even some firms offering sort of trial services um, things to smaller firms. The, uh, when I look at the NLJ 250 survey, I, I look at the again some of the numbers on here. The, the largest firm, number one ranked firm, Baker and McKenzie, has 3,500 plus lawyers, and uh, I imagine a lot of the people who who tend to listen to uh, our program uh, tend to be in smaller firms. Uh, we get uh, you know everything from solo to small to larger size uh, lawyers and larger size firms. Uh, and so, of course, the, the the question inevitably arises as to, you know, does size matter, and, and why does it matter? Is there an advantage to uh, a firm such as Best, Best and Krieger, or Bingham McCutcheon, or any of the others on this list, to being large, and what is that advantage? I think what we're seeing is kind of a stratification of the market. I mean, if you have big clients, it's good to be big. You need to be where those clients are. But as we all know, there are many, many, many opportunities uh, with folks that are not big, big clients. Um, Baker McKenzie needs to be huge because they service people all over the world. The um, firms that fall into the bottom, you know, 50 or so, even the, the bottom 25 of our list, um, they're more regional firms or even local firms, and for them, it doesn't make sense to um, have a have an office in New York if they're not doing New York kind of work. So, you know, I think there's a lot of attention paid to the very biggest, um, but there's a lot of work out there, and it what we see are law firms positioning themselves to, you know, three years ago, four years ago, everyone was saying that they were a full service firm. And that didn't matter if you were in Oklahoma City or New York. Um, and now we're seeing that firms are, are less reticent to say, this is what we do. This is the kind of, of service that we provide. And, you know, if you want to have trust in a state's work, then maybe you go to somebody else. Um, I think that they're more able to recognize what their strengths are and more willing to, to, um, to, to vocalize that. Well, we have to uh, take a short break at this point, so uh, if you would uh, uh, stay with us, we are going to hear a few uh, words and uh, be back in about 60 seconds. We invite you to visit Law.com for timely legal news and in-depth resources. 
From daily headlines to practice-specific updates, Law.com provides up-to-date information to those working in the legal profession. As part of its coverage, Law.com is proud that J. Craig Williams' blog, May It Please the Court, and Robert Ambrogi's blog, Law Sites, are part of its blog network. Don't wait any longer. Visit Law.com today and get free subscriptions of our Newswire newsletter with the top legal stories of the day. Or sign up for a free trial subscription to one of our Practice Center sections. If you found us in the podcast library of iTunes, thanks for listening. Check out some of our other shows at LegalTalkNetwork.com and become a member. It's free. Coast to Coast is produced by the Legal Talk Network and a staff of broadcast professionals. If you have an idea for a topic or a show, we want to hear from you. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and send us an email. If you have a comment or question, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message on the Legal Talk Network listener line at 781-634-8959. We really do listen to the messages and even answer your questions on our next show. A video settlement documentary can be the most powerful and persuasive way to bring about a speedy settlement in your client's case. The Boston Media Group has a staff of television professionals with 20 years' experience writing and producing compelling stories just like the ones you've seen on 60 Minutes or Dateline. We put a human face on the lawsuit with compelling interviews, dramatizations, and visual presentations of the fact. Think of it as a video opening argument that will compel the attorneys on the other side to settle. Call us for a consult at 800-317-5221. That's 800-317-5221. Or check out our website at bostonmediagroup.com. Welcome back to Coast to Coast. I'm Craig Williams. And this is Bob Ambrogi. We'd like to welcome back our guest, Lee Jones, reporter for the National Law Journal, Dan Goldberg, an attorney with Bingham McCutcheon in Boston and a principal of its newly launched uh, affiliate, Bingham Sports Consulting, and attorney Eric Garner, managing partner of Best Best and Krieger in California, and we're talking about the growth of the biggest law firms in the United States. One of the questions that uh, comes up with the large law firms is, is there, uh, and this question is, I guess, maybe for Eric and for Dan, but is there a point at which law firms are going to become too big? I was reading this morning that uh, Google is trying to fend off some antitrust lawsuits for its uh, growth and, and occupation of the market. I wonder if there will ever be an antitrust lawsuit against a law firm. Well, I, I think that the biggest problem with growth in law firms, obviously, is not, not the antitrust because, as we know, there's lots of competition among the law firms. But it is the question of conflicts. Um, and I, I'm sure that uh, others at large firms have, have seen this as well. The conflict issue becomes uh, really a gating issue on a lot of business because you have so many clients, um, and you need to make sure with respect to each matter that you're not bumping up against them on the wrong side. I think that's the biggest problem, and I think that uh, in some ways is the uh, inhibitor uh, to unending growth. And that's a benefit for smaller firms. I was speaking just this morning to a lawyer with a a fairly specialized practice and a small, mid-sized firm who says he gets a lot of his referrals by way of conflicts uh, from larger firms. Absolutely. I think there there are many lawyers and smaller firms who can make a living off large firms' conflicts. I think what what Dan says is exactly correct, is there is sort of a 
some parameter on the antitrust uh, issue in the law firm world because conflicts will stop you. Lee, do you think we're ever going to see an international list of the largest law firms? Well, it seems to be heading that direction. Um, You know, law firms, uh, at first, they want a a presence on both coasts. If we're talking about the bigger law firms, and then they kind of move inward. And then the next logical step is um, to have international status. So, yeah, I think it makes absolute sense. to uh, That's where it's going. Would this list vary much if we were to internationalize it? I mean, some of the firms at the top would change, but... uh, how many would fall off? I mean, I know you can't give me precise numbers, but a lot of the firms that are on this list are are, are what you'd call global already. Sure, but I mean, you you have to uh, to think about. There are many large, powerful firms uh, in the UK. Uh, Clifford Chance being one of those. Uh, several others, and you know, these are firms that b- uh, essentially are based in the US that make the NLJ 250. So, uh, you know, there are some other powerhouses out there on the international scene. What does this mean to, to clients? I mean, do do uh, do businesses, uh, potential clients, look at look at this survey? Is it important to them, or, or are they more likely to look at the American Lawyer Revenues per Partner survey, or or does any of this matter to them? Are they going to look better more at the the, the chambers rankings or something like that? Well, I think I, I think law firms are hungry to see where they fall uh, in comparison to with with their you know with their competition. I think they look closely at all of them. Uh, size is it, it is important. Law firms spend a lot of time hiring uh, and trying to retain their attorneys. So looking at who who's the biggest, who's dropped off, who's gained the most, who's lost the most. Uh, you know, I think they're interested in any information that they can get. I think those things matter, but ultimately to clients, it comes down to one thing, and that is the quality of the work. And related to that, whether it's being provided on a cost-effective basis. Um, and I, I don't know that clients care very much um, about some of the American lawyer rankings. They probably uh, care more about uh, things like the Chambers ranking, which which talk about the, the quality of a particular kind of practice. I think for clients, the main benefit of size is you know, multiple services that the firm can provide. But as with you know any large organization, it really comes down to the individual practitioners who are providing the direct service and are they providing the quality of service that the client wants and expects. Well, but hasn't there been, a, I mean, within corporate boardrooms, this sort of a sense that uh, larger the larger the firm the better it must be <laughs> well i think there's also a sense that the larger the firm the more expensive it's going to be right um so yeah I, and you know clients don't want to get their services on the cheap but they don't want to be ripped off either and not to suggest that anyone on the nlj50 would be ripping off their clients but um it, it, uh, cor- corporations are getting a lot smarter in in buying their legal services from outside counsel, and uh, you know, sometimes they might. If you know, we saw billable hours uh, break the thousand dollar an hour mark last year. So um, I think that they're yes, they're looking for breadth, but they're also looking for um, value. Yeah, although when you look at some of the recent surveys of, of in-house counsel uh, and how they make their hiring decisions. Um, Although you hear a lot of talk about uh, managing cost, you know, when when you're 
read those so-called bet-the-company cases, or even not necessarily a bet-the-company case, uh, they want to go with a with a firm that they they know the name, they they know its reputation, and they know its track record. And there seems to be uh, a leaning towards the larger, more expensive firms, uh, despite the cost. Yeah, there's a reason. I mean, one of the reasons why the large firms got that size is because of the quality, and the quality led to more clients, and that that has a uh, uh, a tumbleweed effect to it. It's just going to continue to grow based in large part on that quality. Without that at the basis, uh, then uh, the, the size won't happen. And there's also, I think, a security fan, uh, factor for corporate counsel. Uh, you know, the top five or ten firms on that list are known to everyone, and if it's a bet-the-company case, no one's going to blame them if they hired that firm and they lose, whereas if they hire someone not as well-known, there's a bigger risk if things don't go well. Well, we'd like to, uh, we're coming near the end of the program, we'd like to wrap it up and get your final thoughts. And one thing I'd like to ask and throw out as uh, part of the final thoughts is do either of you, Eric or Dan, uh, advertise uh, to your clients any of the uh, surveys that we've been talking about this morning? And also, uh, for all three of you, uh, as you comment, please uh, give your contact information for our listeners so that they can get in touch with you if they'd like to. Uh, this is Eric. We put ours uh, on our website, but it's not something we do uh, in a mailing to clients or anything like that because I, I agree with the other comments. I think overall um, our clients don't care that much how big we are. Um, but uh, And my contact information is um, eric.garner at bbklaw.com. Right. Bingham has a website, bingham.com, and mine is daniel.goldberg at bingham.com. And... Um, ultimately, it's not, I, I just reiterate, it's not so much the size except as it relates to the breadth of the services uh, that you can provide. And, uh, you know, as I mentioned, I think the takeaway from, from what we're looking at with the two, uh, with the NLJ 250 is that uh, business remains strong for firms, um, you know, from firms uh, uh, over 3,000 to firms of uh, 172, and which was the drop-off point for our uh, survey, but obviously for firms uh, of, of all sizes. Um, and uh, I can be reached at the uh, at nlj.com, and if you just uh, click on the contact information. And the survey is there on the website as well, uh, and uh, as well as in this week's print edition of the National Law Journal. That's right. Well, thank you to our guests. We really appreciate it. This has been an interesting discussion, and we appreciate all of your participating. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Bob, that's going to wrap it up for Coast to Coast this week. I look forward to speaking with you again next week. All right, Craig, good to talk to you, and look forward to talking to you next week. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast with Robert Ambrogi and J. Craig Williams. Coast to Coast has been sponsored by Law.com. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Gee Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.